you're listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast with me, Susan Romsdorf Terry, and... Luke Romsdorf Terry, where we read a book from the Cat Who Murder Mystery series and discuss it. On today's episode, we're talking about the 15th book in the series, The Cat Who Went Into the Closet. And we are joined today by a very special guest, my mother, Terry Ramsdorf, who's responsible for getting me into the series. This is all my fault. (laughs) And I'm proud of it. (laughs) Anyway. Anyway, this book was originally published when? 1993. 1993. And there is a book... There's a, a digital version of this book. Yes. Audio, uh, or audio, I should say. Yes, audiobooks are still available, but more accurately, the uh, the digital versions of those audiobooks are easier to find. They're, they, uh, to explain to my mother, who's looking at me very confusedly, uh, they're, with a lot of the early books, uh, you can only get them on CD. They haven't been uh, remastered for digital listening. So Audible doesn't have them, which means Amazon doesn't have them, and most and most libraries don't have them until you get... To um, to somewhere around, I believe the Cat Who Knew a Cardinal. Then everything is on digital. I know we, you, of course, recently reread this book for the first time, Susan, <laughs> in, in in a while. And Terry, you yourself, did you reread this book for this Absolutely. episode? Absolutely, yes. Oh, excellent! And how was well? You probably first read it when it first came out. I'm guessing is that right? Many years ago, yes. How was it uh, rereading and coming back to the uh, series? It's been fun. Good. I want to go back and read more of the books now. Now that you've got me started. And you also listened to the audiobooks. Yes, I did. Oh. I listened to it as well as reading it because I wanted to see if there were certain things that I had missed as I was reading through. Excellent. Great. Well, shall we dive right into the synopsis? Absolutely. Alrighty. All right. The cat who went into the closet. And, uh, well, before I should say, I don't know, feel free to interject with any thoughts, as I often do, <laughs> uh, much to Susan's chagrin. That's a good tongue twister. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> All right, so to start off, Quill decides that his barn is too hard to heat and to plow out, so he moves into the Gage Mansion on Goodwinter Boulevard. Euphonia Gage has recently de- deeded the property to Junior Goodwinter, her grandson, and moved to Florida full-time, rather than her previous snowbird status of flying back and forth. So to help Junior cover the property taxes, Quill offers to rent the mansion for the winter. It doesn't hurt that Polly now lives in the carriage house behind the Gage Mansion, which she moved there while Quill was in the potatoes. Uh, while there isn't a lot of furniture left, there are 50 closets, all filled with family secrets for Quill and Coco to uncover. This is in the mansion, 50 closets. 50 closets. Wow. So in case you've never noticed, most really old houses don't actually have closets. Uh, they used wardrobes, high boys, other cabinets for clothing. But the Gage ancestors were shipbuilders and used to having <laughs> everything built in. Mm-hmm. Hence, there are 50 closets and the best woodwork on the boulevard, according to Junior. Uh, one of the first things Quill uncovers is a series of journals from the 1800s, an ancestor who considered himself an amateur historian who wrote about floods, epidemics, sawmill accidents, and a truly awful fire that devastated Moose County in 1869. So when Quill attends a staff meeting to drum up winter ideas for the newspaper, he mentions the journals and Hixie Rice comes up with a brilliant idea to turn the stories into a radio drama, pretending that, of course, that radio existed in 1869. A, an old, old-timey radio an drama. old, old-timey radio drama. Frontier. Exactly. We all had frontier radios on the, uh, you know, the Oregon Trail, <laughs> didn't we? Yes, yes, you wound them up and you, you got rece- you got reception as you crossed the uh, across the Green River. Oh, of course. Uh-huh. 
Quill goes all in with this. He writes the story. He tapes the interviews with various people himself. <laughs> of course he does. Uh, he, he plays with voices and breaks it up. I was going to ask. And... He t- please tell me he does the voices. Oh, totally. Old <gasps> Irish, there's an old Irish innkeeper. There's a farmer. There's um, every, every, anything and everything. And he rehearses with Hixie to get the timing right, much to Polly's annoyance, and finds out how to pack the show in and out of a car trunk in 10 minutes or less. They call it The Big Burning of 1869. Now, before the snow flies, they host a grand gala preview to rave reviews, and it's noticed that a mysterious couple is part of the audience. They're the only ones not wearing sweaters, which is the usual dress-up attire for Moose County. (laughs) Uh, There's lots of conversations about Euphonia Gage. Quill never did get that lunch date that they discussed in The Cat Who Knew Shakespeare. And her insistence on the power of purple and breathing. Um, And according to Junior, she still stands on her head every day. Well, good for her. Which is why it's such a shock the next morning when Arch calls Quill to tell him that Junior is flying down below to Florida to collect her body. And that she's apparently committed suicide. Euphonia Gage did. Euphonia Gage. Wow. Dead. Committed suicide. So Quill starts going hunting through those 50 closets to, uh, for photographs for the paper to use and finds a letter dated only two weeks previously asking Junior to ship her health books to Florida. This is not the actions of a fully planned suicide, so Quill's mustache is on full alert. Uh, and he's further alerted when he finds out that the homes at the uh, at the mobile home park are bought back by the management and still fully furnished. And one of the interesting things about the buyback is they buy them back at a very reduced price. Exactly. Hmm. Well, of course, they've been used. How could they buy them back at full price? We do, however, in the midst of all of that bad news, we get some lovely news. Mm-hmm. Arch Riker and Mildred Hanstable are planning to get married on Christmas Eve. Oh, wonderful. It's really, really nice. Very uh, appropriate for the timing of this recording, exactly. too. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's nice that the two have finally found each other. Um, and the, uh, the, the publisher of the newspaper and the food writer uh, will be wonderful and comfortable together for the Seems rest like of the Seems like a soon. conflict of interest, but we won't get into that. <laughs> <laughs> it's small town. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> So in the meantime, Quill and Hixie start touring the Big Burning to schools and clubs and wherever else they get booked. Um, Their first show nearly doesn't happen. Quill loses the cue card and Hixie finds a mouse in her jacket sleeve, which causes her to careen off the road where she has to be hauled out by a tractor. Causes her car to to careen off the road. They don't have to get a tractor to get herself out. Yes, no, she didn't get personally stuck. It was her car. That would be a very bad accident if you have to get a tractor. Exactly. For just you in the ditch. (laughs) And between these, Junior starts sharing family gossip. Uh, We know that Grandma Gage paid for his and his siblings' college tuition. Well, apparently it's because she she despised uh, his father, Senior, for being weak. So this was her F.U. to him. He can't provide for his children, so she's going to provide for them. Oh, wow. Um, Quill uh, has lunch at Lois's Luncheonette, which is the, as has been mentioned before, this is the luncheonette that's downtown, the the only place to really eat something downtown. At this point. And it turns out that the luncheonette is actually owned by Euphonio. Hmm. And no one will buy it from her because it, they'd have to bring it up to code. <laughs> it's, you know, you've got those those dumps where the food is just so good nobody wants to change a thing. That's Lois's. There's a lot of, and maybe it's just because we've been watching it, but there's just a lot of Shit's Creek in Moose <laughs> County that I'm seeing as far as just the, the colorful residents, the little traditions, and the places around that just have a bunch of color and history. Yeah, I think that's a really good comparison. Um, I wouldn't say that the uh, luncheon is anywhere near the Tropical Cafe, though, uh, no, based no, no, on no, 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 no. The Tropical Cafe is at least somewhat up to code. <laughs> um, Euphonia's husband, however... Um, was apparently a bit nicer. Lois mentions that he didn't fuss if he had to come back the next day to collect the rent, um, although Quill thinks that has more to do with Lois's roast beef sandwiches. 
So she came back to get a roast beef sandwich. Yes. Yeah, he would come to get the rent. Lois would make him a roast beef sandwich and then tell him that she didn't have it today. He needed to come back tomorrow so when she'd have the full amount for the rent. So he'd come back again and get another roast beef sandwich. Not a bad deal. Not a bad deal at all. I, I would take rent and sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> on a further side quest, this is... A, side quest. On a further side quest, <laughs> Quill heads to Burr. Um, yes, the town, remember the town of Burr, coldest oh, spot in the country. Coldest spot in the, yep, yep. At the request of Gary Pratt to meet with a woman who Gary says could use his advice. Let's also remember that Burr is spelled like you would expect it, B3Rs. Exactly. <laughs> Gary, in his conversation, also mentions Euphonia's husband and describes him as a bit of a boozer, one of the guys. Oh. Now, this is getting interesting because we don't know Mr. Gage's name. He is referred to as Mr. Gage for the entire book. Interesting. As I, I, I write these notes as I'm reading the book, so we uh, we have notes here that say we still don't know his name. If I scroll down a couple, uh, scroll down to the end, we still find out we don't know his name. We never learn it. So he's the Mister Big. Yeah, exactly. We don't necessarily know. Okay, interesting. We never learn Mister Gage's name. Apparently, he's just not that important to the story. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's why he's dead. Exactly. Um, well, and then uh, at the uh, at the Black Bear Cafe, Quill meets Nancy Fincher, who raises huskies for dog sledding. And the advice she needs is because her father, Gil Inchpot, has disappeared just before the potato harvest and the sheriff's de- deputy, which is also Nancy's ex-husband, uh, dismissed her concern. Now, Nancy's concern is perfectly valid. The man left his dog without food for three days until Nancy found him, left his potato harvest. Uh, we find out a little bit later he left his dentures behind. Uh, the, the man, something has very much happened to this. And so the sheriff dismissing him, uh, dismissing her concerns is is a big problem. Well, yeah. Why he would do that, we really don't know. Quill does pass this, passes these suspicions on to Chief Brody and uh, heads to the cemetery with Junior to pay last respects to Euphonia. Uh, Quill, Junior comments that his grandparents are now closer in death than they ever were in life. As we've said before, you know, <laughs> Euphonia is into health and the healing arts. And Mr. Gage preferred sports and booze. He apparently also liked to play with the family fortune and not always legally, which is why he spent two years in prison for financial fraud in the 1920s. Hmm. Euphonia uh, was apparently pressured into marrying the Gage heir. Again, we still don't know his name. Uh, to help <laughs> socially, yes, to socially advance her family. And they only had one child. Gritty, Gertrude, um, who sadly passed away uh, in one of the earlier books. Yes, as we remember, dear departed Gritty. Dear departed Gritty. Liberté, um, égalité, Gritté. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's a fun, a fun note. Uh, Gritty, as the only child, apparently called herself the honeymoon special. <laughs> it says a lot about Gritty's sense of humor that that's how she would refer to herself, to her parents. <laughs> um, we go back to the Gage Mansion and Quill ca- catalogs some of Coco's finds from the 50 closets. We've had a purple slipper. A purple hair ribbon, a handkerchief embroidered in purple with Sonara, a lavender sachet, a purple lipstick. Quill has decided that Grandma Gage is, to coin his own phrase, a purplist. She always wore it. She said it focused her energy. And again, why would someone commit suicide with that kind of energy idea? So we further move on, and Quill goes back out to Burr Township to check on Nancy uh, to get a little bit more information about her dad's disappearance and collect information on sled dogs and racing for the Quill pen. Nancy's dad's truck has been found at the airport lot, um, but still no sign of him. Her dad was also apparently spending a lot of money before he disappeared, which is contrary, apparently, to his usual tight-fisted ways. Nancy then reveals that her mother was actually the Gage's housekeeper, and Nancy would visit the mansion at Christmas. And Junior was her high school prom date. (laughs) They were the only ones short enough for each other. And how short were they? 
pretty short. Um, I, I would say they're probably about my height, my height around 5'2", five, 5'3". Um, which I always classify as five six five five. I don't know why. <laughs> it's so nice. It's of just you. I give a. I don't know why. I just can't register that. Yeah. No. They they are tiny. They are the tiny people. So we're we're at you know five feet and a little bit at most. Um, a few days later, Nancy calls Quill in a panic because she went into her dad's medicine cabinet for a bandage, and this is when she finds his dentures. So we know the man did not leave anything willingly. Um, he left his dog, he left the truck, he left the dentures. This is not somebody going hunting on a whim. Sounds like a country song almost when you put it that way. <laughs> left, lost my dog, lost my dentures. Lost my truck. <laughs> Quill then gets the contact information for Euphonia's neighbor in Florida hmm. from Junior. And we meet the sprightly Celia Robinson. Cecilia, excuse me. Cecilia, Cecilia Robinson. Cecilia Robinson, who talks about Betty and Claude, who own the Park of Pink Sunsets, which is the motorhome park where she and Mrs. Gage lived. <laughs> Cecilia is a youthful 68 to Mrs. Gage's 88, and used to drive her around because Euphonia didn't like the, uh, the Florida traffic. Well, who does? Exactly. Well, also, she couldn't bully the uh, the tra- the, uh, the traffic cops in Florida into getting rid of her traffic tickets like she couldn't pickaxe. <laughs> She was apparently very chummy with Betty and Claude. That's Mrs. Gage, not Cecilia. Um, they're very, they, who were apparently sticklers for rules and permits with everyone else, but would take Euphonia to the dog races and socialize more than they did with the other tenants. Cecilia and Mrs. Gage's gentleman friend, however, Mr. Crocus, are suspicious of the suicide. They feel it doesn't match up with the Euphonia they knew, and they and Cecilia promises to mail Quill some photos of Euphonia for her memorial, which is very sweet of him. To further add insult to injury, Euphonia's newest will is read, which leaves her three grandchildren, Junior, Pug, and Jack. Pug is a chosen name, by the way, if I remember correctly. I, it's got to be, because we never learn Pug's real name. That's it's, a, it's not like Gritty, and we know that it's uh, Gritty short is short for Gertrude. For Gertrude. Right. Pug is just Pug. No, it's just Pug. With their cousin Sheltie and Jack Russell. <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, so back to this. Euphonia's newest will leaves her three grandchildren $100 each. Ooh. That's it. Uh, the rest of the estate is left to the Park of Pink Sunsets to build and maintain a health spa. <laughs> Somehow, this does not seem completely above board. Jack and Pug are understandably furious, and they plan to leave before the memorial service because there's no way they can maintain a straight face of actually missing a woman who was just so, this is just so beyond the pale to them. Sure. Um, Junior, by the way, is also stuck with inheriting Euphonia's private papers with instructions to burn them, in addition to having inherited the house, (laughs) which is a giant white elephant on Goodwinter Boulevard. It should be mentioned that it's one of many white elephants that are on Goodwinter Boulevard at this point. These are the big houses where the Kling, uh, in, in the, in the circle where the Klingenshin Mansion used to be, that's now the theater. Mm -hmm. And we have, I think, eight or nine of these giant houses that nobody wants to buy because nobody wants a house that big anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the city won't rezone, so the people who are living there are stuck trying to sell the houses. And no one's going to buy and them. No one's and going this to creates buy them. A, This and creates a vicious cycle. Exactly. We then get a chat with uh, Pender Wilmot, who is Euphonia's <laughs> uh, neighbor and her, and her attorney. Oh. Um, we chat with him and his son, Timmy, who is... Timmy Wilmont. Timmy Wilmont is annoyingly precocious and, quite frankly, a frustrating little kid. Um, who <laughs> likes to chase You his... say that, and then our daughter's going to turn into that, probably. probably. <laughs> um, but through Timmy, Quill learns that a realtor in Chicago is starting to make offers on some of the Goodwinter Boulevard houses. Mm. So something is going on there. The memorial service for Euphonia does go on, in which Polly calls it her last gasp of cultural snobbery. Hmm. Um, according to Polly, only Euphonia would use the Latin name for Sonara. 
Um, Sonora, by the way, is a Ravel musical setting of a poem that's really not as popular as it used to be. Um, and I'm, when I first read it, I, my mind immediately went to Sayonara, which <laughs> is not the same thing. And so that's why, okay, I'm glad you explained what a Sonora is. Yeah, I, it's the name of a poem, and I, I tried to look the poem up, and it's not popular enough to really exist on the internet, which should tell you something about how unpopular this this work is. The musical work, however, is very popular. Ravel wrote a beautiful setting, um, and it's it's wonderful and heartbreaking and very sad. If there's not a Wikipedia article about it, then who cares? I mean, it doesn't even exist. Um, if it's not in our records, it doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, but it should be mentioned, it is beautifully played by the new music director for Moose County Schools, June Halberton. Mm. She's a younger redhead who wears a distinctive perfume, plays beautifully, and Polly is not impressed. But Quill I'm sure other. Quill is. Uh, he is. And he gets an invite to go see her music collection, quote unquote. <laughs> oh. I am so air quoting here. It's music collection. Yeah, uh, that, that's what they're calling it these days. Leaf through my sheet music, Mr. <laughs> Quill. Oh my. So also featured in this memorial service is an anonymous poem about two lovelorn butterflies that no one can identify. <laughs> um, there's a reason for this. We find it out later. Now, um, a, a quick sidebar just about lovelorn butterflies. This is has very little to do with the story, but it reminds me. Uh, there is a bad song from the 60s called The Elusive Butterfly of Love. If you ever saw any of those time life things, you would hear a singer sing it. And uh, the reason I bring this up is because he was actually a member of, he was an he's a alumnus of Western State Colorado University, where I went to college. Got it. And every week during specialty programming week at the radio station I used to work at, I would play that song until someone actually made a donation to get me to stop. <laughs> I will put a link to that in the show notes because it's a beautifully 60s song. Like, it just screams everything that you imagine about folk stereotypes. Anyway, moving on. The elusive butterfly that's in our heart in in Moose County. Let's move on. Nobody can identify the poem. (laughs) After the memorial service, we get another phone call uh, to Cecilia Robinson. And uh, we get some more information about Euphonia's life in Florida. She sold her zippy yellow car to Betty, the manager, mm-hmm. and Cecilia describes them as chummy, like mother and daughter. Huh. Um, Quill has also noticed that a couple that no, there's a couple that no one can identify in the back of a couple of Cecilia's, Cecilia's photos, and Cecilia thinks they came from Minnesota, but she can't be sure. We get, uh, we move on. We get the first snowfall, and uh, Quill goes just up to set out for uh, goes out to set up for a big burning show. <laughs> taking Coco along for the ride for some reason. Yum Yum still just chill at the house. Yum Yum just chills at the house. <laughs> she hunts in the closets. No mice this time. Yeah, there's um, 50 of them, so yeah, exactly. plenty to keep them occupied. So while they're out, they decide to, uh, he decides to swing by the Klingenton cabin by the lake, just to be sure it's closed up appropriately for the winter. Sure. Um, but led by Coco, he ends up finding the body of Gil Inchpot, Nancy's father, kind of in a hollow on the property. Oh, God. Yeah, body has been destroyed by weather and animals, so Nancy has to identify it by its remaining clothing, which is a plaid shirt and house slippers. Um, Despite being found in an out-of-season hunting location, the lack of gun and outerwear really confirm everybody's suspicions that Inchbot didn't end up there on his own. We then move on to a performance of The Big Burning, and Hixie has a really bad mishap. Uh Uh-oh. She falls off the stage and breaks her foot. Oh, no. Leading Quill to need a replacement um, tech person and fast. Unfortunately, Nancy is available and needs a distraction from her dad's death slash murder. Sure. In the hospital, however, Hixie has time to look over the photos that Cecilia sent from Florida. And she recognizes Betty and Claude as the not-sweatery couple from the big burning premiere. 
Although she thinks the Betty was The ones who were just there that yeah, no one Yeah, the ones knew. that no one knew. Okay. And she thinks Betty was wearing a wig when she was there, but Hicksy's <laughs> got a really good memory for faces. <laughs> in other news, it turns out Amanda Goodwinter has sold her mansion on the boulevard, also to the realtor in Chicago, and she makes it out just in time because Pickaxe is gearing up for the big one. Oh. Remember, these. this is the first giant snow that usually shuts down the city for a couple of days. Now, is there is there a big one out here in Bend, in Oregon? Not traditionally. We will occasionally have a big snow, but it's not it's not like in Moose County where there is a big one every year. Gotcha. We've once been snowed in for three days, but oh, wow. that's in 30 years. <laughs> that's a good record and a good margin. Mm-hmm. Good. No. It think- snows up in the mountains where the skiers like it. And down here, it's gone by noon. (laughs) With very few exceptions. I think there was, in 12 years of public schooling, I remember one day that we, that it snowed so much overnight that they had to cancel school the next day and into the following day. And since at the time I walked to school, I mean, it was, (laughs) I, I, I didn't care. I was walking across the field and over snow and that was what I had been doing before. But for everybody else, it was apparently the buses couldn't get up the, uh, couldn't get up the hills on the other side of town. So they had to close it out. Exactly. Interesting. Well, all right. Now back to Pickaxe and their big one. Um, Quill is being really lackadaisical about this. He's, you know, not really paying attention to making sure that he's got a supply of canned food. Well, and, and this isn't his first big one either. It isn't. It's interesting. So why he's being particular, why he is not caring that much this year, there, there's a there's a commentary that he says about, well, it wasn't that bad in the past. Huh. Quill, can we point out that at a previous big one, you got snowed in at Polly's and your car got stuck. You drove your car into a bush. And you had to go, you had to feel your way along the hedgerows to Polly's house and nearly died in the cold. So why you're taking it so lackadaisically this time, I don't know. Maybe it's because you've moved into the center of town and you think that they'll be able to to, to plow you out as quickly as possible. Well, there's more plows back there. Who knows? Yeah. It's Nick Bamba who, who when he comes to uh, to break the lock on the final closet at the, at the mansion, uh-huh. um, who finally convinces Quill that if he's not going to lay in some provisions for himself... If not for you, do it for the cats. And this is important because of course. You know, he's, he might get stuck. He also reminds him, interestingly, to not use the house's elevator. There's an elevator in this house. Mm. But to not use the elevator once the snow starts. Because if the power goes out, he could be trapped in there. Oh, that's a very good point. 50 closets in an elevator. 50 closets in an elevator. But no garage. No, Well, no, there's an no, entire I... garage building. Remember, that's where Polly lives. Oh, God, that, yes, that's right. So Quill finally does listen. Unattached garage. Unattached garage, yes, yes. yes. Uh, Modern so, living at its best. So Quill does listen. It's a good thing, too, because within 24 hours of that, he's snowbound uh, in a 16-hour blizzard that knocks out powers and phones for three days. So Nick knows what he's doing. Exactly. And finally, <laughs> he gets a call from Polly letting him know that he can plug his fridge back in because the power's back on. Oh, good. After that, Quill makes another call to Cecilia Robinson and finds out that Euphonia had Junior video her house before she sold all the furnishings. Hmm. Um, And apparently she showed this video at the Park of Pink Sunsets, which may explain why Junior is getting calls um, from a company offering to buy his house fixtures, even though they aren't on the market or generally known. Hmm. So the only way you could know about the fixtures that are in this house, and we're talking about, you know, a solid silver chandelier um, and some really intricate brasswork. And things sconces, that, stuff sconces, like that. exactly. Yeah. But again, things that you would not know unless you have seen a video of the house. Hmm. Because they're not listed in any catalogs. Interesting. Um, Quill and Coco then go hunting in the formerly locked closet and find a man's signet ring, a marriage, a marriage notice for a Lena Foot and Gil Inchbot. These are Nancy's parents, by the way, dated 1961, and a love letter, dated 1929. 
1929, as it happens, is uh, right smack in the middle of when Grandpa Gage, again, we still don't know his name, uh, <laughs> was in prison for fraud. Oh. Um, and apparently, rather than try to weather the scandal and pickaxe, Euphonia went to Lockmaster for two years, which is where she fell in love with a horse trainer. He eventually ends it and leaves so that she can return to her former life. And it's likely that the anonymous poem about butterflies at Euphonia's memorial was actually his work. <laughs> so there's the story. Grandma Gage had an affair. Oh, my. And his name was Bob Lind. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was William something. I know. Bob Lind was the man who wrote The Elusive Butterfly of Love. Ah, <laughs> it would have been lovely if his name was Bob, but not. Anyway, moving on. Well, if it had been Bill, it would have made sense because his name was William. There oh, that's true. Oh, goodness, yes. Yeah, this is how this goes every time. Um, <laughs> So now that the snow has been finally been cleared through, Quill, Arch, and Mildred uh, and Polly all get together for Thanksgiving. They've and all they, been at different houses. They've they're all not, been okay. in different houses, and now they're joining. They're getting together at Polly's for Thanksgiving. Uh, they discuss the upcoming wedding. It'll be at the Landspeaks house out on Purple Point, so the cats are not invited. Aww. Which, it you know, the nice thing about having Polly and Quill live so close together, Polly's sister-in-law will come and look after Coco and Yum Yum as well as Bootsy. Well, that's good. And. Yes. Does the sister-in-law get along better with the cats than Polly? The sister-in-law gets gets along with Coco and Yum Yum considerably better than Polly does. It should be mentioned. Good. Um, <laughs> L- Lynette is not a is not persona non grata. And to be <laughs> fair, it's not that the cats don't like Polly. It's that Bootsy doesn't like Quill. Ah, that's right. Bootsy doesn't like Quill. And so the cats never get. Hence again, the perpetual reason why they never got married. Their cats are incompatible. Yep. Quill then gets a better look at that gold signet ring that Coco found and mm. notices the initials E R G. And WBK, Euphonia's maiden name was Roth. WBK, obviously, though, is not Mr. Gage. So it's a really good thing that the cat stole it, so Quill couldn't give it to Junior as he had originally planned. Junior then shares some concerns with Quill. There don't seem to be currently enough assets for him to contest the will, uh, giving uh, all of the money to the Park of Pink Sunsets. But there's a concern. There are some huge cash deposits that just disappear after Euphonia sells the furnishings and other items. We don't know what happens to them, and Quill tries to speak with Cecilia about the possibility that all may not be well in the Park of Pink Sunsets, uh, but she resents the implications and tells him not to call again before hanging up on him. Turns out, she thinks her phones are being tapped by the park management. Hmm. And she actually drives to a mall and calls him back from a payphone to apologize. And Quill, of payphones. Yes, the, the age of payphones. Quill and Cecilia then come up with a sting operation to expose the potential fraud at the Park of Pink Sunsets. And this is our first encounter with one of my favorite little side quests. This is Agent 0013 and a half, which is what Quill calls Cecilia whenever they come up with these with these scams where he uses her as his uh, as as his blind to go in somewhere because she's just a friendly old grandma. No one's going to so suspect no gonna, her. No one's going to suspect her exactly. She, and Quill's the guy in the earpiece with the computer. Exactly. Doing and, the thing. and it should be mentioned, the money. Um, <laughs> so their plans involve... Well, 13 and a half. Yes. Their Jeez. plans involve Cecilia telling Betty and Claude that she, that she, Cecilia, has come into money. And seeing their reactions as she begins to spend it. Now, to really push the boundaries of this, they borrow Bushy's house full of antiques hmm. um, to, uh, to have a list of antiques to have them appraise. Um, and then they invent, this is fun, a cat with its own trust fund. <laughs> the management falls for it. Despite the fact that no pets are usually permitted here, Cecilia is their favorite person. They give her a special permit for the cat and move her up on the list to get a larger mobile home. Um, for very simili- for, for verisimilitude, they actually arrange for a cat to come from Chicago with Cecilia's grandson, Clayton, on his next visit. Jeez. This plan continues, and everything they're uncovering makes it look more and more like the Park of Pink Sunsets has been committing 
fraud after fraud after fraud after fraud. Clearly. Um, that list of antiques that Quill sent was valued at around $900,000, but um, the management team is only offering $100,000. Mm. And then they start offering her bearer bonds as investment opportunities. By the way, these are bearer, called bearer bonds because they're they can be cashed, cashed by the, by the bearer. bearer. Interesting. Which means that, you know, if they if you just happen to leave a whole bunch of bearer bonds in your in your secure safe at the Park of Pink Sunsets and then you die, what's to stop management from opening that opening that safe and walking off of them and claiming, "No, no, she never had anything." Mm. Yeah. So again, screaming fraud and Quill is absolutely thrilled with the information. Um, but he does make a critical mistake. Um, he forgets to tell Cecilia that he's headed to Archer Mildred's wedding so that he has to call her at home, knowing that her phones are bugged. Oh. Um, if her phone is indeed being tapped, now Betty and Claude know that Quill will be out of the Gage house for three days. And we shall see what happens. Hmm. Coco does make a, uh, another discovery in that formerly locked closet. Uh, the birth certificate for a girl named Leith. After the river in Hades that induces forgetfulness. Lots to unpack in that particular statement. I um, can, yes. My. So the birth certificate lists Euphonia Gage as the mother. But there's no father listed. Scandal. Nameless. Scandal. Oh, my. Um, Especially back then. Exactly. Um, Coco then brings Quill a packet of foot powder. And after Quill freaks out about the possibility of Coco trying to poison himself, um, he finally makes the connection. Leith is actually Lena Foot, Nancy's mother, who died of cancer the previous year. Mm. So Lena Foot, Leith, Gage, everybody's yep. connected now. So now we, now we know who the daughter is. Um, who's been a secret daughter, and this explains. To, this will explain to Nancy um, why she was always invited to the house at Christmas. So, with that big revelation out of the way, Quill heads off to Purple Point, which is so named because apparently, when viewed through the evening haze, the uh, the point does look purple. <laughs> and this is for Arch and Mildred's wedding, and it's beautiful. It's also the only. It's noted as the only time that Quill has served as the best man at a wedding and not dropped the the ring. And let's just say this bodes well. Well, good. Because his previous two weddings were Arch's first wedding. And Iris Cops. Oh. Yeah. Nay, and we Drop know the what, ring both times. We know how Iris Cops, yeah. yeah. Poor well, Iris. And, Ar- and Arch, obviously, you know. Well, yes, if this is a, it, is, this is is a not, second marriage. Yeah, for second marriage. But, but, oh, still, poor Iris. Yeah. Quill doesn't drop the, wing, the ring. The wing? He doesn't drop the wing. He doesn't drop the wing. Quill doesn't drop the ring. All bodes well for Arch and Mildred, which it should because they definitely deserve some happiness with each other. Yes, after the ceremony, Quill chats again with Pender Wilmot about the Park of Pink Sunsets and their probable defrauding of their tenants. It's agreed that the information they've been getting from Cecilia means there is enough information to contest the will. Hmm. But two days into Quill's long weekend on Purple Point, he gets a frantic call from Polly's sister-in-law, Lynette, because the cats are missing. And... I'm, I'm only sighing because I... It's become a thing if the cats are missing, they're going to turn up. They are going to turn not, up. It's, otherwise, the, we wouldn't be on book 15 by now. If, <laughs> exactly. if the cats, they're, they're fine. But still. It's still, you know, it's a it's panic still, yes. that your cats are missing. Exactly. And to make matters a little bit scarier, she saw a delivery van in the back of the Gage Mansion when she stopped by the day before. Oh, no. So in a panic, Quill actually dog sleds back to Pickaxe <laughs> because Purple <laughs> Point had been cut off with the snow. Right. Um, thank you, Nancy. She got him across. She got him across the lake to the mainland, and thanks to uh, where Nick Bamba meets him, and they they rush back to Pickaxe, and they find Coco and Yum Yum totally calm in the front hall, guarding someone who's trapped in the elevator because they lost power. Oh. Person in the elevator turns out to be Betty and Claude's henchman, who was sent to strip the Gage Mansions of its valuable fixtures. Um, Cecilia's phone really was tapped. 
Uh, Cecilia herself calls Quill later and tells him that Betty and Claude have disappeared and that she sent a certain tape recording along with some brownies to Moose County. <laughs> Quill gets the tape and loves the brownies um, and takes immediate takes it immediately to Pender Wilmot. On the tape, we hear Clayton, Cecilia's grandson, getting Betty to confess that Euphonia took the wrong medication that caused her death and another resident to reveal that she was being blackmailed about Leith. Mm. And that in combination of that, it's very likely that Euphonia told Betty and Claude about the blackmail and hopes they might be able to help. So what it turns out to be is that all of the money that Gil Inchpot was getting because he before he died is because he was the blackmailer. Ah. He, he was blackmailing Euphonia about the knowledge that he had married her daughter. Hmm. Um, and Betty and Claude, in order to protect their investment in Euphonia, mm -hmm. um, have him killed. To stop the payments. That's one way to do it. Exactly. Sure. Now, as far as Euphonia goes, they don't really want this information to get out that they actually, you know, had somebody killed for her. Right. So that's why she has to die. Um, mm. And it looks like as they start to go through the history of the Park of Pink Sunsets, she's not the first to be murdered by them and would not have been the last if Quill and Cecilia hadn't teamed up. Jeez. So eventually, Betty and Claude and all their accomplices are rounded up, charged with fraud and murder, and the Park of Pink Sunsets closes its gates. <laughs> In other news, it's strongly hinted that the K-Fund is behind the purchases of all the mansions on Goodwinter Boulevard with the intention to turn them into a community college. Oh, that's a smart way of doing it. So only time will tell. But the only way that they could that they would actually succeed about that succeed at that is if they bought all the mansions. All at once. If there is nobody left to complain about the zoning, mm -hmm. then you can rezone. But the only people that would the only thing that would ever have enough money to buy all of those mansions would be the K-Fund. Pickaxe Community College. We will we will see what it what it turns out <laughs> to be in a future book. Great, interesting. So, so that is the uh, the cat who went into the closet. Fifty of them. Fifty, all fifty closets. <laughs> now we have some new faces. Of course, we meet the Gage family, the, the Gage's attorney. Yes, along with the wife and uh, Timmy. Yes. <laughs> Good old Timmy. Um, this is, by the way, the first. This book has the first appearance of uh, the weatherman on WPKX with the best name ever, Weatherby Good. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, as someone who uh, is a fond, I'm saying that with a lot of sarcasm, uh, of puns, Terry. There are plenty <laughs> of good names in this entire series. How how often do you roll your eyes uh, when you're reading these books? Very often. <laughs> The puns are there, and you, you don't have to be a discreet reader of this stuff to be able to notice all the puns. <laughs> Weather be good. That one's painfully obvious, though. Yes. We, we, will, we will meet and learn more about Weather Be Good in later books. Um, he becomes a regular character and, it, and actually one of my favorites. Well, so excellent. He's, so despite the punny name, he is, he is a delightful character later on. Um, so, Mom, you were talking about the the big burning. Yes. What were your feelings about reading that reading through that first one? Because the the book itself opens with a a reading of, I would say, most of the uh, most of what would be the script to the big burning. Exactly. It starts, and you think you're hearing a newscast. And I was reading it last fall, right after the major fires in California and Oregon. And so I'm reading this, and it could be a current newscast until you get further into it and realize that it was happening in 1869. And as you're reading this, it's really, really intense and brings up some flashbacks of what we were thinking about 
and worrying about when all these homes were being burned. We're talking up and in the book, we're talking about people who were wandering and carrying a loved one who, and the two of them are the only ones who've survived from the family and carts going through with dead bodies and so forth. And we know that a lot of that was happening very currently. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was very, very uh, timely for me to be reading that book this fall. Yeah. Mm. And it should be mentioned that the descriptions are very graphic. Um, Mom edited things very nicely, but it, it gets quite gruesome um, and very realistic to what would happen if you were dealing with a fire of that magnitude when you didn't have access to um, a strong fire team that can fly in and dump water on things. Right. Well, just I know earlier in the year as well, too, when we were uh, we were together and we were talking, uh, one town I know that was here in Oregon just completely overnight mm-hmm. just disappeared off the map because of the fires. Yes. So it's... Yeah, no. It, yeah, it's... There are a couple of towns that completely disappeared, and people could get into their cars and their RVs and get out of town mm-hmm. just ahead of the flames. Where when you were talking about having to hitch up your wagon, yeah, it really was a much slower process, and a lot more people died. I can imagine. Now, with that, have you ever had to? You're the area here in Bend. Have you ever had to leave because of a fire uh, warning? No, we have not. But we have a number of friends who have, depending mm. on where they live. We're fortunate enough to live in an area that does not have a lot of trees, and we have an irrigation canal. Oh, good. Very close by. So between the two, we're in a fairly safe area for that. Earthquakes are another story. Uh, we have a break in our um, driveway that has been there for at least six or eight years. Oh, wow. And that was simply because some tectonic plates Some activity shifted. underneath. Yes, mm-hmm. you were asking about the crack in the dining room. Ah, was that... That's Same be- sort of thing. Same, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Same story. Well, I, know, I only ask because I know my parents, uh, they've been very fortunate in their area that they live up in the mountains in Colorado. They've only been, they've only received an evacuation notice once in the entire, uh, you know, over 40 years that they've lived up there. So, yeah, and it was a near thing this fall. It was, mm-hmm. uh, well, this fall, yeah, it beca- this fall, uh, 2020, was very close, but I think it was 2013 or 2012 was when they received it. The first one, it was very sudden. It was lifted that exact same afternoon. Mm-hmm. But it was, yeah, the first time when there was an evacuation. It's very, it's scary stuff. Yes, it is. Well, let's move on to talking about how terrible Quill is with women. <laughs> once again. <laughs> once Quill, again. Once again. Which we could I, say that's not going to be a recurring uh, theme, but sadly he, it is. I think he gets better about it as, as the books go on. And he starts to actually acknowledge the fact that he's in his 60s. Because she kind of moves him very slowly to a man in his mid-40s to a man in his 50s to eventually a man in his early 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now we're in the 50s and he's still lusting after women half his age. Um, there's way too much time spent talking about how appealing Nancy is and then thinking that she might make Polly jealous. And once again, God, that relationship is so unhealthy. Quill and Polly's. So, so many things that just do not work. There. And it seems that both of them like to feed into making it unhealthy. Exactly. So it's not just like it's one-sided. I mean... Oh, no. They, the two of them, yeah, they... This, yeah, there, there's yeah, a... they both do this. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, we have Hixie Rice, who has always been 
Quill's Girl Friday, for lack of a better term, um, and not in a romantic way. She, in this book, thanks Quill for bringing her to Moose County because down below, all she wanted to was to, to do was get married. Now she's been promoted to the vice president of advertising at the something. That's crazy. She's getting her own office and her own secretary, a male secretary at that. Um, <laughs> now, granted, she has to share the secretary with Arch Riker, um, but it's still, this is more than she would ever dream of professionally before she moved up here. And then, of course, she goes and breaks her foot and moves in with her doctor's mother. Um, and that's a whole nother story. Are we going to see more of that story? We will see a little bit more of that story in the next <laughs> Um Back to the big burning of 1869. Quill goes a little bit too far above and beyond for show business. Um, he does a performance of the big burning in a church basement with a broken boiler in the dead of winter. Um, the audience are all wearing their outdoor gil- gear. Gear. Um, and they're out- they're wearing they're their out- outdoor gills. Their outdoor gills. Because it's, it's, well, the, the, anyway, never mind. It's underwater. Um, <laughs> the audience are all wearing their outdoor gear and Quill insists on doing the show in his shirt sleeves because he says, better to contract pneumonia than compromise one's art. Oh God. Hixie responds with, I'll visit you in the hospital. Which then is ironic because this is a show where where Hixie does end up in the hospital after tripping off the stage and breaking her foot. So Quill's a method actor. He is. Now, in Quill's defense, he hasn't done much acting since college and he may have forgotten that, you know, acting is pretending. And, yes, and also the fact that you're doing it live in front of an audience. I mean, if you want, never mind. It's, (laughs) we can get into Stanislavski and method and everything else, all the different school of acting. Yes, but it's just, oh God, a method actor. Yes. For a... Traveling church basement revival show. <laughs> um, one other thing that makes me laugh: um, Quill and formal wear, um, because <laughs> once again, Quill needs formal wear for an event. In this case, Arch and Mildred's wedding. Mm-hmm. But the formal wear that he already purchased for the steeplechase in the Catanua Cardinal um, is currently stuck behind twenty feet of snow and uh, back in his barn. <laughs> he goes and rents a tux for the wedding. Well, at least he does something sensible. Then. Yes. Well, you know, in this in this particular case, I, even Scotty of Scotty's Men's Shop cannot convince him to buy two sets of formal wear. He convinced <laughs> him to buy the first one. Um, our signs of the time, obviously, we've got calls from public payphones. And it should be noted that post offices in this point apparently still had general delivery. Although this is in 1993, and I don't feel like post they office... S- they still have general delivery. Really? Yes. Yes, I do taxes for AARP, and we had someone come in who was homeless, and we ah. sent his refund to general delivery. This is why. This is this why. why we do this. This is exactly. I did not know that. But that... I didn't either. I had to go to the post office and find out. <laughs> That's amazing. And actually, that makes a huge amount of sense. So... Um, so it, it, not to interrupt, but it, how no. it works is if you have, like, I have a letter for general delivery, and the post office will just hold it? Then? You send me a letter in care of general delivery huh. if there is no place where you can send it where I can receive it. Huh. So then I go into the post office, show them my identification, and say that you had sent me a letter so they can identify who the letter's coming from, who it's going to, and they will hand deliver the letter to me at I the post office. never felt more like a millennial in my life than I have right now. <laughs> With that, but that's with not knowing that, but that is fascinating, yeah. and that's in- incredibly practical. What you said, if someone's homeless mm-hmm. but still needs to get it tax still documents, to get tax social security funds. checks, whatever it might be. Yeah, I think in in Quill's particular case, we hear a lot about general delivery, um, in the sense that he doesn't want to bother having his mail forwarded. 
Um, so he just tells people to send him mail care of general delivery when he's still kind of bouncing around between down below and Moose County. Right. And when he's dealing with Cecilia, he sends it to general delivery because if something that he sends is sent to the, the park. mobile park, it's going to go through the office. And get tampered. And, and we don't want, and it, it, that's want. how we keep a secret. Things we did not know. No, I did not. This is, that was a wonderful piece of knowledge to learn. Good Thank to you, know. Mom. No, good to know. And, and, and that may come useful. We don't know. Well, when you get a, t- a travel trailer and you start touring the country, mm-hmm. you'll be able to say to us, send me a letter and send it to general delivery. I'll pick it up when I get to Phoenix. There you go. That's a great, that's a great thing. When we get our tiny home <laughs> and go coast to coast, it'll be tiny homes with an 18... 18- yeah, I'm sorry. There's no way that we're traveling with less than, with less than a Broadway show does because let's remember that I'm a costumer and I collect things. Uh, yes, you do. And it's... Going to be a little bit of Myra Rose deciding which one she's going to take with her. <laughs> my girls, my girls. Anyway, I just had her washed out. Blown out. <laughs> so a fun detail. If you've been listening to our podcast, you might be wondering about our intro and our outro music and where those might have come from. Um, both pieces are heavily featured in the books. The intro is Kitten on the Keys, which is played by Weather Be Good at numerous cocktail parties. Really? Exactly. That's where I found it. But the outro is Anitra's Dance from Pier Gint. This is used as the opening music for the big burning of 1869. <laughs> and that is where those two pieces came from, because they're the two pieces of music from this entire series that stuck in my head enough that when you were asking me about music of what should we do, those are the two that came up. So just so you know, from here on out, anytime that uh, Weather Be Good is even mentioned in the book, I'm just because the version we're using is Liberace's version. <laughs> so I'm just going to imagine Liberace as Weather Be Good. I think that's a good, good character piece. Yes. Liberace could play Weatherby Good. No. We're going to find out more you, about you, that when later. You, when you meet Weatherby Good in his real name and everything else, this will make more sense. So he's more of a Sam Elliott type is what you're saying. Uh, something like that. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Weatherby Good. Oh, just one beads upside down. It's murder. <laughs> um, finally, cats will be cats. Um, Quill gets to tell a story about how Coco managed to sneak into one of the closets where his cleaner keeps her cleaning supplies and managed to unleash the foam carpet cleaner, which managed to fill the entire closet, except for, of course, the shelf where Coco is hiding at the top. (laughs) Just in case anyone was worried about the cats getting poisoned. Just jumping up quickly, seeing that going, crap, 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 crap. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, Quill writes about this for the Quill pen because, I'm sorry, but that's such a ridiculous thing to have happen. Of course you write about it. Oh, of course. Um, Turns out that the manufacturer sent him a lifetime supply of carpet cleaning. Ah. So Ah. he never has to worry about that again. Um, the, we also briefly meet the neighbor's cat, the Wilmot's cat, OJ. Um, (laughs) he's bright orange too. (laughs) Oh God. Oh, there's, I'm, oh, I'm just going to show my age by making so many weirdly specific jokes about that, but I'm not going to right now. Let's just move on. So it turns out that OJ has been hitting on Yum Yum and spraying Quill's back door, which possibly leads to why Quill decided to buy the Wilmont house to get them out of there and get rid of OJ. Oh, God. So that's less cats will be cats and more Quill is a vindictive uh, cat owner. Speaking of cats, what would you give this as your uh, <laughs> paw rating? All right. So for my paw rating, I would give this book 2.5 paws. Two and a half paws. All right. Yeah. It's, it's solid. There's a lot of great events. And Celia is a Cecilia is a wonderful addition to this cast of characters. And this we see her more often, right? We do. We do. Cool. And But there is so much information in this book that had to be inferred or contextually figured out that's not actually explained. 
Um, Mom, you were mentioning when I was getting ready to to read through this book that you didn't know why Mr. Gage had ended up in jail. Um, and it wasn't until I I read through the book and was was going through to for for perp- for for these purposes that I was able to figure out oh he ended up in jail because of fraud. And that was what just one very small comment mm-hmm. that was in there, and you're going oh good grief you how know, are you supposed I missed to- it twice yeah mm. and I remember reading this book um back in high school and college when I would do a reread um. And this is one that's really hard to figure out exactly how it worked. Um, you know, tracking through to make sure you've got um, the uh, the illegitimate daughter and her husband who's get, who's getting the blackmail payments and how that connects to the uh, fraud at the Park of Pink Sunsets and how Euphonia died and are the two connected? Technically, they're not, but they, yet they are with that with the people at the Park of Pink Sunsets killing the guy who's doing the blackmail so that they can make sure that they've got more money when they kill Euphonia. Nothing is really stated. Again, it's it's very hard. It, Most, it's, it's a lot of infer- inferring. It's or, a lot of inferring. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of conjecture and rereading things for comprehension clues. Um, and frankly, that's just too much work for something that's supposed to be a relaxing read. <laughs> that's why it gets such a lower rating. No, understandable and fair enough. Any any other thoughts on this one from 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 both of you, from Terry, from Susan? I think there's a a lot of foreshadowing in it. When we talk about the uh, home in the motor, the motor park that they buy back at a very reduced rate, that's your first inkling that these guys are crooks. And that goes on. And the fact that Nancy, the sled dog rider, who's really Junior's cousin, mm-hmm. doesn't know much about her maternal grandparents because Euphonia had given her mom to them to raise and then at 15, she brought her back into the house into the house to be her housekeeper. Yes. And it very, very odd pieces. And I think her mom's parents were the ones who told her yes. dad. Uh, Mr. Inchbot. Yeah, Gil Inchbot. About, about the whole business of his wife being illegitimate, which is how he started doing to blackmail, blackmail Euphonia. Mm-hmm. So he had the money to put into his farm. Yes. And then, of course, ironically, he loses it all and, uh, and they, they never managed to get his farm plowed. They never managed to get his potato crop harvested. Quill really tries, but then uh, then the big one hits. So mm. there's nothing to be done. There's just so much information that's layered in here and it's not, it's not as clearly written as some of her other books. Um, even when she's got, even when there are books where we don't know who the killer is because we've never met the killer until the very end of the book because it's somebody who's actually completely on the periphery. With this one, all of the clues are there. They're just not tied in as well as they as they could have been and are sure. tied in in other books. Mom, do you have a favorite, Coco or Yum Yum? Well, Coco is the investigator. Yes. And he's, <laughs> he's such fun. But Yum Yum is the one that's the cuddler. Oh, and I, I like cuddly cats. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us on yeah, this episode. So excited this, yeah, this is great. This is a nice little little treat. Glad to be here. Now, what's the next book we're going to be reading? Alrighty. So the next book we are going to be reading is a big break in the series. This is where we, we very clearly move into the latter half of um, of the Moose County world. This mm. is this is where everything starts changing. Interesting. And it's it's also one of my favorites. Oh. This is uh, the, so the next the next book we have is the Cat Who Came to Breakfast. Well, and my favorite meal. <laughs> Mind you. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, 
Thank you very much for listening. Yeah, I am Susan Romsdorf Terry. And I'm Luke Romsdorf Terry. And until next time, happy sleuthing. And stay nosy, my friends. Thank you.